radio on his back, they were able to transmit only that they were surrounded by the security forces at the palace and taken captive. Then the transmission was killed. Abu turned to his advisor in alarm. How can this be? The radio man said, The material left for the men, the anti-tank weapons, the ammunition, the C-4, all of it was defective. Nothing worked, and the government forces were lying in wait for them. Our men were set up from the beginning. Abu's customary serenity vanished. He beckoned his number one advisor. Yes, Abi, I need your wise counsel. The technician came close to the master terrorist. Abu put one arm around his shoulders. There must be a traitor in our ranks, an infiltrator. Our plans were leaked. Abu made a subtle gesture with a finger and thumb. On his cue, his followers immediately grabbed the technician by the arms, legs, and shoulders. Swiftly, Abu's right hand shot out, and he plunged a serrated, hooked knife into the technician's abdomen, yanking the blade down and then out. Abu's eyes were blazing. The traitor is you. The technician gasped. The pain was excruciating, but his face remained a stolid mask. No, Abu. Pig. No one else knew the timing, the exact plans. No one. And you are the one who certified the material. It can be no one else. Suddenly the beach was flooded with blinding carbon arc light. Abu turned and saw that they were surrounded by dozens of soldiers in khaki uniforms, machine guns pointed. The Tunisian Garde Nationale. A thundering racket from above announced the arrival of several attack helicopters. Bursts of automatic gunfire hit Abu's men, turning them into jerking marionettes. Their blood-curdling screams were abruptly silenced as their bodies toppled to the ground. Another burst of gunfire and then it stopped. The silence that followed was eerie. Abu spun back around to the man he had branded a traitor, poising his blade for another attack. Just as Abu lunged forward, powerful hands grabbed the bearded Hezbollah leader from behind, slamming him down and pinning him to the sand. Abu's eyes burned with defiance as the two were taken into custody by the government soldiers. As he was dragged past the technician, he spat full in his face and hissed, You are not long for this world, traitor, pig. You will die for your treachery. Several soldiers gently eased the technician down onto a waiting stretcher. The captain of the Garde Nationale stepped forward. My God, it's a wonder you're still conscious. You've lost a great deal of blood. If your men had responded to my signal a little more speedily, this wouldn't have happened. He touched his wristwatch, which was equipped with a miniaturized high-frequency transmitter. The captain pointed to a hovering helicopter. That chopper will take you to a high-security government medical facility in Morocco. That's where you'll be. The captain said more, but the gravely wounded man didn't hear it. The loss of blood had been too great. Before the captain had finished speaking, the technician passed out. Five weeks after the failed coup d'etat, a chartered jet touched down on a private landing strip near Washington, D.C. There was only one passenger on the aircraft. None of the crew knew his name. The flight's arrival appeared on no aviation logs anywhere. The nameless passenger was taken by unmarked sedan to downtown Washington and dropped off near DuPont Circle. He wore an unimpressive gray suit and looked like one of a thousand faceless, colorless, mid-level lobbyists and bureaucrats. 
Nobody gave him a second look as he walked to a dun-colored four-story building at 1324 K Street. The building was like all the other bland, boxy low-rises surrounding it. These were the offices of lobbying groups and trade organizations, travel bureaus, and industry boards. Beside 1324K's front entrance, brass plaques announced the offices of Innovation Enterprises and American Trade International. Only a very few people might have noticed a few anomalous details. The fact, for example, that every window frame was equipped with a piezoelectric oscillator, rendering futile any attempt at laser acoustic surveillance from outside. Certainly nothing about this highly ordinary building ever attracted the attention of its neighbors. But that was how the directorate liked to be, hidden in plain view. Who would ever suspect that the most secretive of the world's covert agencies would be headquartered here? Inside the lobby, from a brass wall panel, the man picked up a perfectly conventional-looking telephone handset. He pressed a series of numbers, a predetermined code. He kept his index finger on the last button, the pound sign, for a few seconds until he heard a faint ring, signifying that his fingerprint had been electronically scanned, analyzed, and approved. A disembodied mechanical voice commanded him to state his business. I have an appointment with Mr. McKenzie, said the man. In seconds, his words were matched against a database of pre-cleared voice prints. Only then did a faint buzzing in the lobby indicate that the first inner set of glass doors could be opened. He hung up and pushed open the heavy, bulletproof glass doors, entered a tiny antechamber, and stood there for a few seconds as his facial features were scanned. A second set of doors opened onto a small reception area, equipped with hidden monitoring devices that could detect all manner of concealed weapons. A guard waved Bryson past through another set of doors into a hall where about a dozen clerical types were at their desks. Nicholas Bryson, my main man, exclaimed Chris Edgecombe, bounding from his seat at a computer monitor. He'd been at the directorate for four years, working on the communications and coordination team. He fielded distress calls, relayed information to agents in the field. He clasped Bryson's hand warmly. Bryson knew he was something of a hero to people like Edgecombe, who yearned to be field operatives. Somebody hurt you? Edgecombe's expression was sympathetic. Bryson simply nodded. The directorate's creed, above all, was segmentation and compartmentalization. No one agent or staffer should ever know enough to be in the position to jeopardize the security of the whole. Bryson knew a few of the desk jockeys, of course, but the field personnel all operated in isolation. If you had to work together, you knew each other only by a field legend, a temporary alias. You're a good man, Chris, Bryson remarked. Edgecombe smiled, then pointed a finger upward. He knew Bryson had an appointment with the big man himself, Ted Waller. Don't get up, Bryson said as he entered Ted Waller's third floor office. Waller did anyway, all six feet four inches and three hundred pounds of him, all elegantly sheathed in a suit of navy cashmere. As they shook hands, Waller appraised Bryson with alarm. Good Lord, you look like you came out of a POW camp. Thirty-three days in a U.S. government clinic in Morocco will do that to you, Ted. Waller patted his ample girth. 
Perhaps I should try being gutted by a mad terrorist someday. Bryson took a seat in front of him as Waller settled weightily in the chair behind his oak desk again. He shook his head. What a business we're in. Never forget it's what you don't see that always gets you. But they say you've made a remarkable recovery. The doctors tell me that in a few more weeks I'll be as good as new. They also say I'll never need an appendectomy, a side benefit I never thought of. Waller nodded. You know why you're here? A kid gets a note to see the principal, he expects a reprimand. Nikki, you have some inkling of the Directorate's command and control structure. Decisions, especially ones concerning key personnel, do not always stop at my desk. And as important as loyalty is to you and to me, it's cold-hearted pragmatism that rules the day. You know that. Bryson recognized the undertones of the pink slip talk. He fought the urge to defend himself, for that was not directorate procedure. It was unseemly. He recalled one of Waller's mantras. As you say, all's well that ends well. And it did end well. I almost lost you, Waller replied, a teacher speaking to a prize student who has disappointed him. That's not pertinent, Ted. Anyway, you can't read the rules on the side of the box when you're in the field. You know that. You taught me that. You improvise. You follow instinct. Losing you could have meant losing Tunisia. And there's a cascade effect. You nearly compromised other undercover operations in Maghreb and other places around the sandbox. You put other lives in jeopardy, Nikki. The technician's legend was intricately connected to other legends we'd manufactured. Yet you let your cover get blown. Now, wait a second. Giving them defective munitions? How did you think they wouldn't suspect you? Damn it, they weren't supposed to be defective. But they were. Why? I don't know. Did you inspect them? Yes. Uh, no, I don't know. It never crossed my mind that the goods weren't as they were represented. That was a serious lapse, Nicky. You endangered years of work, years of deep cover planning, the lives of some of our most valuable assets. God damn it! What were you thinking? I... I don't know. I don't know? Not exactly words that inspire confidence, are they? You used to be our top field operative. What happened to you, Nick? Maybe... somehow I screwed up. Well, we can't afford such screw-ups. We can't tolerate this kind of carelessness. We allow for margins of error, but we cannot go beyond them. You think there was something I could have done differently? Or somebody else could have done it better? Nick, you were the best we ever had. You know that. But as I told you, these decisions are reached at consortium level, not at my desk. A chill ran through Bryson upon hearing the bureaucratese that told him Waller had already distanced himself from the consequences of the decision to let him go. Ted Waller was Bryson's mentor, boss, and friend, and fifteen years ago, early in his career, his teacher. Waller was the most brilliant man he'd ever met. He could solve partial differential equations in his head. He possessed vast stores of arcane geopolitical knowledge. At the same time, his lumbering frame belied his extraordinary physical dexterity. His marksmanship was legendary. You use the past tense, Ted, the implication being that you believe I've lost it. Nick, I've never worked with anyone better, and I doubt I ever will. 
Nobody else could have accomplished what you did in the Comoros, in Sri Lanka, in Belarus. Leave it to the politicians to color inside the lines, because those are the lines that we've drawn, that you've drawn. The historians will never know, and the truth is it's better that way. Bryson didn't comment. No comment was called for. And on a separate matter, Nick, noses are out of joint around here about the Bank du Nord business. He was referring to Bryson's penetration of a Tunis bank that channeled laundered funds to Abu and Hezbollah to fund the coup attempt. One night during the operation, more than $1.5 billion simply disappeared, vanished into cyberspace. Months of investigation had failed to account for the missing assets. You're not suggesting that I had my hand in the cookie jar, are you? Of course not. But you understand that there are always going to be suspicions. Personally, I question the method of diversion, the monies transferred through false flags to Abu's colleagues to purchase compromisable background data. That's called improvisation. Using my powers of discretion is what you pay me for, but wait a minute. I was never debriefed about this. You offered up the details yourself, Nick. Oh, Christ. It was chemicals, wasn't it? Now he understood the need for such a protracted stay in an American-staffed clinic. Chemicals had to be administered without the subject's knowledge, preferably injected into the intravenous drip. God damn it, Ted. What's the implication? That I couldn't be trusted to undergo a conventional debriefing, offer the goods up freely? That only a blind interrogation could tell you what you wanted to know? Sometimes the most reliable interrogation is that which is conducted without the subject's calculation of his own best interest. Meaning you guys thought I'd lie to cover my ass. Nicky, once assessments are made that an individual may not be 100% trustworthy, contrary assumptions are made, at least provisionally. That's the brutal fact of an intelligence bureaucracy, especially one as paranoid as we are. Paranoid. It was an article of faith that the directorate, that the Central Intelligence Agency, the Defense Intelligence Agency, and even the National Security Agency were riddled with moles and hamstrung by regulation. Waller liked to call these agencies the woolly mammoths. In his earliest days with the directorate, Bryson had innocently asked Waller whether some measure of cooperation with the other agencies didn't make sense. Waller had laughed. You mean let the woolly mammoths know we exist? Why not just send a press release to Pravda? But the crisis of American intelligence, in Waller's view, went far beyond the problems of penetration. 